This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first interview episode. My name is Brandon Pollan, and I am joined by my co-host, F. Scott Field, and we had an absolute blast interviewing John Childs about an overview of the PT education model. Now, John is a true innovator, and he's definitely driving change with PT entry-level education. And it was very enlightening to hear his perspective on many of the pressing issues facing DPT education, along with some solutions. Now, we realized that we didn't discuss much in detail about the Baylor and South College DPT programs, but we're looking to having John Childs and other representatives from the Baylor and South College DPT programs, along with a current student in the South College program, in for a future episode. So it will be covered. So without further ado, we present our interview with John Childs. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. And today, we are honored to have the one and only Dr. John Childs joining us. Dr. Childs, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show with us. Thanks. Glad to be here. So many people in the physical therapy profession know Dr. Childs as the founder and CEO of Evidence in Motion, which is the largest provider of post-professional educational programs in the PT industry. Dr. Childs, do you think you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey as a PT and about your experience throughout your various roles as a clinician, educator, and administrator? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a little bit of background. I uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy back in the mid-1990s, uh, 1994 uh, to be exact. So I had a bit of an unusual uh, path as a physical therapist in that when I graduated from college, I was commissioned uh, in the Air Force as a second lieutenant. And then went straight to graduate school, uh, which was PT school in my case, in the U.S. Army Baylor program, which was a master's program at the time. Uh, graduated in, uh, let's see, it was about an 18-month or so program. Finished up in the summer, I think, of 1996. Uh, and then was in clinical practice for three to four years uh, at Davis-Monson uh, Air Force Base in Tucson. Then went to Columbus, Mississippi. I uh, was only in Mississippi, gosh, uh, for about 10 months and got picked up to get my uh, PhD. And it was, that was a real pivotal point in my career uh, because I was debating about getting out of the Air Force, you know, staying in. My commitment was, you know, coming to an end. And when the Air Force dangled the PhD uh, opportunity out there for me to uh, stay in the Air Force, uh, that was, you know, for an educational junkie like me, that was too hard to resist. And that was really the beginning of what I would call the sort of the academic educational uh, phase of my career eventually led to me being involved in a number of startups in the PT industry, which has been you know, a tremendous journey over the last number of years. Yeah, Dr. Childs, first off, thank you so much for your service. Um, I've been a physical therapist now for 10 years, and I've followed uh, your career for just about all 10 of those years. My question was, uh, what do you feel is the biggest limitations or restrictions currently in DPT education uh, utilizing the current mainstream model? 
You know, it's a great uh, question. The way I sort of uh, frame it is, you know, when I went to PT school, uh, master's degree was sort of the mainstay. We had already made the shift uh, from bachelor's to master's. For the most part, there were still some bachelor programs around when I went to PT school. But for the most part, master's was the norm and programs were about 18 months uh, in length, I would say, on average. And then all of a sudden in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there becomes this uh, shift towards the DPT. And we could hash out all the reasons why, you know, that sort of happened, whether that was a good idea, bad idea. Uh, it doesn't really matter. In this case, it's the DPT and that's what, you know, what it is. But in any event, when it went to the DPT, uh, higher education really saw an opportunity to tack on uh, another year, in some cases, year and a half of education. The demand for PT school was quite high. It still is. Uh, so where there's a willingness to pay tuition, uh, there are institutions of higher ed that all the, that are that are more than happy to accept those tuition dollars. I, I joke with individuals that if the market would support a five-year DPT, I can assure you that academics would find a way to uh, stretch it out even further. I mean, all of a sudden, uh, all these esoteric skills that are so-called advanced skills, trust me, they would become entry-level requirements in these five-year programs. The reason DPT is not five years is because the market really won't support that. Um, they found sort of this sweet spot uh, at three years. Um, and I say that to say this, when you look at the content that was actually added to the curriculum to sort of get us from the master's to the DPT, you're talking about pharmacology, radiology, imaging, maybe that's four to six months of content. So we sort of make the case that if you would have right-sized DPT education around the needs of the curriculum, it would probably have gone from about 18 months to two years. Instead, it went from 18 months to three years for supply-demand sorts of reasons that had really nothing to do with the curriculum and the sort of the requirements of what you need to get to that doctoral uh, degree. So over the years, of course, what's happened is we've gotten longer and longer education. Tuition keeps going up and up and up. And it's not lost on any of us that salaries among PTs have stayed relatively flat uh, despite the transition to the DPT. So you have students with higher and higher debt loads uh, making the same amount of money as those of us who made uh, when we graduated from PT school in the mid-90s, obviously adjusted for uh, inflation. And so the return on investment as a PT is becoming less and less compelling. Uh, and we think that poses a serious threat to the applicant pool. I tell folks all the time, I've got five kids and I could never recommend that one of my children become a physical therapist, at least based on some return on investment type metric. Uh, and that embarrasses me a bit that I would have to perhaps counsel my kids to consider another uh, career, uh, especially at, you know, $150,000 tuition type school where you're going to be paying student loans for 20, 30 years. You're never going to get out of debt. Certainly as therapists, we, we get into the profession for reasons that are above and beyond financial. Um, and that's a good thing that defines, I think, uh, some of our caring, our empathy. But it still has to make common sense uh, from a financial perspective. And we think that that uh, return on investment is increasingly becoming um, a threat to, or the lack of return on investment, a threat to the future of the applicant pool. You know, what used to be, you know, your grandparents uh, were proud if they graduated from high school. Uh, our parents were proud if we graduated from college. We're proud of our kids if they go to a great grad school. And so we certainly see this kind of educational creep where where you go to high school is less important than where you go to college is less important than where you go to grad school. And so, you know, grad school is sort of the ticket now to the sort of the, the middle class work working uh, sort of for, you know, force, if you will, uh, whereas now college is like what high school used to be, kind of gets you into sort of an entry level job. 
What changes do you feel uh, that a majority of the DPT programs uh, are going to need to make in order to provide better education to their students in the future? Uh, realizing that you know every program is, is very specific, um, but what are some changes that you think that a lot of the DPT programs will need to make? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. And I'll use the analogy of clinical research uh, to kind of apply it to the educational realm. So if you look at uh, clinical practice over the last 20 years, one of the things that we've recognized is that there's a huge variability uh, in practice, right? Uh, certain therapists use certain techniques uh, for a patient with back pain. Others, you know, manipulate them. Some use more, more exercise. Some, you know, wave little wands over them called ultrasound. And right, there's just this massive variability. If you took a patient with back pain, stood them up in front of a room, brought in uh, 50 to 100 therapists, all 50 or 100 of those therapists would likely treat that individual sort of differently. We recognize that as a profession and we set out on a course of clinical research over the last 15 or 20 years that has uh, produced an abundance of research that has really helped to inform best practice for patients with any number of musculoskeletal conditions. Now, that doesn't mean all the variability in practice has gone away, but certainly I think it would be hard to argue that we've not become more consistent in our care processes. If nothing else, for example, passive care, we know now for sure just does not work. And we need to move towards more active care, more psychologically informed care. And, and so we've got a lot of data to guide our decision. So let's apply that now to the educational sector. So if you look at uh, PT schools, uh, there's been uh, probably 240, 250 schools or so. Um, and there's massive variability in how those programs are run. Uh, every program has its own sort of introduction to biomechanics kind of lectures. There's really very little to no uh, focus on educational research. We've put a lot of emphasis on how to practice better in the clinic, but there's extremely little data on models of education that are optimal for building the next generation of physical therapists. And worse than that is that these educational programs, they, they don't cooperate well together at all, right? They live within their little brick and mortar fiefdom and the faculty in each of those schools sort of thinks it has the, um, you know, the cat's meow, if you will, of the body of knowledge that's necessary to teach their students. So if I'm on faculty in a program, um, my content is my content, uh, your content, and another program is your content. Um, and we sort of claim our intellectual property to our content and we don't share it across programs. And so as a result, students get, again, this very kind of wide variation in practice or in their education, both in the didactic phase, but even worse is in the clinical education phase. And that's where we think the real black eye is of DPT, uh, is that we send therapists out to the clinic and then we sort of hope and pray that they catch something useful while they're out there, uh, really having no idea what they're learning. Uh, in most cases, no objective sort of outcome measures and those sorts of things that can, and, and then in many cases, our clinical educators are very loosely connected to the academic programs. I mean, we still have situations where students show up on a rotation and it's a surprise to the CI that a student is there mm -hmm. on a Monday morning. And, and you know, and that's a problem. Uh, I say that, you know, the only requirements to be a clinical educator is you got to have a heart rate and a pulse and a license. And if you meet those three things, there are many schools that are willing to send you uh, students. And that's just not an optimal way to train. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, and kind of with that, Dr. Childs, what do you feel is the best solution to that problem? 
Well, this gets to the heart of kind of the journey we've been on on the EIM side over the last uh, number of years. You know, for our first, you know, 10 years of our history, we really focused on post-professional education in a blended model. So residency programs, fellowship programs, certification programs. And then in call it 2011-12, sometime in that time frame, we really got interested in seeing if we could take some of those strategies that we had learned in blended learning in the post-professional world and sort of move that upstream into entry level. And our first sort of effort was trying to tackle clinical education because on the EIM side, on the post-professional side, we had this big network of, of outpatient uh, clinics, uh, hospitals uh, that partnered with us on residency fellowship. So we had a lot of really highly motivated uh, clinicians who had gone through our program. So somewhat of a standardized set of, of clinical uh, educators, if you will, that were very motivated to train students in a consistent model. So we built a curriculum. Uh, we invited schools to participate. If you were willing to send students for a minimum of six months up to a year, we would help you place those students into our network. Uh, which we thought was a big asset to support um, DCEs uh, in their role for matching students. And so we built this sort of network and very few programs really wanted to participate. Because of that real insular nature, I think they were sort of threatened by sort of this outside entity coming alongside them and supporting them in matching students. You know, it becomes the fear of well, you know, if EIM is going to match our students, then why do why do we need a DCE um, to do that that job, right? So there's sort of a threat. Um, there were a few programs that came along, but you know, we we took we thought it was a build it and they'll come type model, and that just did not happen uh, at all. Uh, mm -hmm. We really, frankly, we underestimated the tendency towards the status quo in higher education. Um, and this gets on, you know, I could beat on this bully pulpit all day long, but when you have such a robust applicant pool, which we do, there's six or seven applicants for every seat. You have students that are largely graduating successfully and passing the licensure exam, which is, you know, kind of the litmus test of whether a program is succeeding or not. There are many, you know, well-intended educators that sit around conference tables and argue that there's no problem in PT education um, because the sort of the outcomes of passing the licensure, students are getting jobs. What's the problem? And so there's a huge tendency towards the status quo. We underestimated that and finally realized, gosh, if we want to make a dent in PT education, we're actually going to have to get into the PT education business soup to nuts. So from the very beginning, uh, when a student's recruited all the way to the very end, uh, if we're going to have any ability to uh, realize some of the changes, at least we think uh, will be in, you know, pivotal for the next generation of therapists. Yeah. So what can we do as students of physical therapy, physical therapists and educators uh, to contribute to this solution? Yeah, it's a, it's a, again, very fair question. Um, if you want to do it in your lifetime, um, I think you have to sort of start from scratch. Uh, and that may be a bit uh, cynical because there are a lot of very, um, I think, progressive faculty with some terrific ideas for upgrading their own program and their own curriculum. The problem with that is unless you have a leadership structure within your program that really allows you to be innovative, uh, disrupt the sort of the status quo, and make decisions without consensus, then you're going to have a really hard time uh, influencing the curriculum of that program. Because by and large, faculty in traditional programs sit around a table 
Everybody throws out their idea and you talk until you get to some level of consensus. And consensus is just not the way that you're ever going to make change. You ultimately have to have someone who is going to be a benevolent dictator of sorts, who's a visionary that has an idea and has the sort of the, the latitude to uh, be that benevolent dictator and make change happen. And that sort of leadership, um, unfortunately, just doesn't exist in most academic programs because we, again, have sort of been built on this kind of consensus model where everybody's kind of got to be happy and agree. And that just never happens. So it, so basically you sit around, you talk and you talk about change, you have these strategic planning meetings, and then you sort of go back and you do the exact same thing you've always been doing. So that's a bit cynical. That's why we have sort of taken the route of doing sort of startup programs, building them from scratch, where we can have some level of influence over the design and the model. So you're saying that finding a program that has the freedom of creativity is really the optimal setting or solution for change and growth. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, you've got to have a program director uh, leadership within that program where there's a culture for doing something different. And you do see this in a number of schools um, that are starting to, for example, maybe take a three-year program and make it a uh, two-and-a-half-year program or programs that are starting to uh, incorporate some elements of online and distance education uh, into the model to give students a bit more uh, flexibility. So these um, models of innovation are happening within PT education in established programs. They're just happening at extremely kinds of low and slow kinds of rates. And even in the best program, even in the, the best case scenario, uh, to, to shift a curriculum that's currently in place, it's going to take you three to four years to ever see those changes through, right? Because you've always got existing students in the pipeline. So it's like steering the Titanic um, when you're trying to change curriculum in an existing program. Dr. Charles, where do you see the future of DPT education going? Well, I mean, we, we, we certainly don't have a crystal ball, uh, but, you know, we are putting our stake in the ground that PT school is going to go to something that looks uh, more akin to a two to perhaps two and a half year model. So we're going to see a, a decrease in the length. Uh, we simply don't think that the three year DPT with increases in tuition like we're seeing is a sustainable model that at some point in the not too distant future, we're going to see the applicant pool tipping and really shifting towards other health professions. Um, I mean, why not be a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner? There's a lot of other health professions where you can pay lower educational costs and make more income. The, the logic of becoming a therapist is starting to become, well, Ill illogical. And so we think it's going to be shorter. Uh, and then we also think that there's going to be more and more uh, elements of online uh, presence in programs. We think the days of the brick and mortar uh, schools, uh, they'll still be there. Uh, they're not going away anytime soon. Uh, but we think that the, the sort of the modern student, if you will, wants a bit more flexibility. Uh, faculty want more flexibility. You know, there's no real reason why faculty have to live necessarily in the local area of the campus. Uh, frankly, given the technology that's available, students don't necessarily have to live in the local area uh, if the curriculum is designed in a way that facilitates that. So we think we'll see shorter um, uh, programs and uh, elements of blended learning coming into those uh, programs will be the future. So, John, I know there's been a lot of talk among many people in the PT profession regarding residency. Some people think in either being mandatory, some not. Um, what are your overall thoughts about residency and specifically that thoughts on mandatory residency? 
Well, it's a great a great question. Obviously, on the EIM side, we're huge fans of, of residency. Uh, I tell people all the time, I'm uh, embarrassed and not proud of the fact that um, we're the largest residency provider in the country by a factor of probably 20. Um, and we don't wear that as a badge of honor uh, that we have that level of scale relative to other programs. We think that it's sort of a black eye. And I, what I mean by that is, is we don't have enough capacity of residency providers at this stage to meet the demand. And right now, frankly, the demand for residency, you know, is probably represents maybe at most 10% of those graduating. And yet we can only satisfy maybe three to 5% of that demand at best. So by and large, fewer than, you know, call it 5% of graduating therapists go on to residency following graduation. Um, now, and, and, and on the EIM side, I, I counsel a lot of students to not go into residency when they graduate because they can't afford it. And that's where we think the advantage of the two-year DPT comes into play because you shave a year of tuition off, you go into residency, and even if you're making a residency stipend as opposed to a full-up comp during residency, you're still making money versus paying tuition. So the net sort of cost over that same period of time, it's a tremendous value because you can get both your DPT and residency. So we don't think residency, well, first of all, let me say this, we certainly would, I'd love to be alive uh, when the day happens that residency becomes uh, mandatory or, or, or so common that it's like in medicine where, you know, you really don't see physicians getting employed unless they've completed residency, right? Residency in medicine is not mandatory. It's just that the market won't hire you unless you have done a residency. We'd love to see that same phenomenon happen in PT, but we don't think that's possible uh, until there are more residency opportunities and we see tuition come down in a way that gives therapists sort of the cap space uh, to reasonably complete a residency program. Uh, if, if that can happen in our lifetime and one day I can sit in my rocking chair and look out and see 90 plus percent of therapists going on to residency training, um, I'll have lived a, a pretty good life. So I know too, you know, for myself personally, I've been kind of struggling with that decision too, whether the residency or no residency. So if someone's not going for residency and they're looking more for a mentor, can you kind of just briefly go into um, about mentorship and how people can still get that growth, not necessarily even to the point where they don't necessarily even need the residency program or if it's not necessarily um, the financially best option? Yeah, you bet. And again, as I mentioned before, I personally counsel a lot of students, our, our admissions folks, um, counsel students uh, not to go into residency. And that may surprise uh, folks because obviously we're in the residency business. But when we have these students who call us and they've got, you know, 160,000 or in some cases north of 200,000 when you include undergraduate and they're really motivated, they want to go into residency and they're going to make, call it 40,000 a year in residency, all the bells and whistles go off and, and we're like, look, there are other options besides residency. You can go through certification programs, for example. We certainly have those, which we think of as residency light, where you can get the same access to the didactic curriculum, uh, but your mentorship is going to be more, I don't want to say haphazard. It's just not going to be as structured as it is in a, in a residency. So those are really good options. Um, you know, finding a mentor, uh, I, I tell people this all the time. Uh, it's, it's not as hard as 
as it sounds. You just need to get connected with um, an employer that really values and invests in their therapist learning. So you want to find out from your employer what sort of resources do they uh, invest in their therapist uh, continuing education, uh, for example. And, you know, the kinds of therapists, at least in our clinics, we want to employ we want to employ those what we think are the top third of therapists. They um, they may want to do residency, but for sure, they're really interested in lifelong learning, regardless of whether they want to do residency. Um, and then we'll invest a significant um, uh, set of resources into their development over the first three to five years of their career. So it's really about finding an employer uh, that will uh, sort of stand behind their, you know, everybody says they're interested in quality care, clinical excellence. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to invest heavily in your therapist's uh, sort of clinical pathway, especially early in your career. If you could change one aspect of education, what aspect would that be and why? You know, I, th I think in the, in the DPT program, for example, that we're doing at South College, we sort of iterated on what I think of as two major themes. One was the link uh, and then one was the model, you know, brick and mortar to more blended. Um, if there's only one of those two, if you tied my hand behind my back, um, and you can only do one, I would say, give me the length and we'll do it in a brick and mortar model. And the reason is, is because it's really the link that frees up what I, what I call the cap space. And that, what I mean by that is the difference between what therapists are paying in a three-year model versus what they're paying in a two-year model. And it's not just the difference in tuition. The actual larger difference is the opportunity cost of that third year. In that third year, students in other programs right, are paying tuition. I'm now graduated in a two-year uh, program. I have my DPT. Uh, I may be going into residency. I may not be. Let's take the example of the student that's not going into residency. So in a two-year model, maybe they've got a net tuition of, let's call it, let's make it expensive. Let's call it a, you know, let's call it a hundred thousand even. Uh, so still a pretty premium tuition, but you're not paying tuition in the third year. I go into the employment market I'm making, call it the average, let's say, let's just be conservative. Let's say I'm making 60000 a year. My net cost now for PT school is about $40,000 if you compare it to any other student going to a three-year program. Well, that's, that's as uh, reasonable as any public institution anywhere in the country. And that is an ROI that you can make, you know, that makes sense. So really the length is to me the key point to iterate around and, and innovate around um, because that then frees up that therapist to get into the employment market, perhaps go to residency. And even if they go to residency, it's still a tremendous value uh, relative to a three-year DPT. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of, you know, all this amazing content and this just wonderful insight that's really, truly been um, eye-opening for myself, you know, not really going into the education system too much. Um, uh, Dr. Childs, where can people find, find you on online and on social media? Yeah, so we're uh, all over on the EIM side, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, got Instagram. We're at EIM team uh, is our EIM handle. That's at EIM team. Um, I'm pretty active on social media. Uh, my handle uh, in most places is at Childs JD. So my last name, J is in John, D is in David. And you can get in touch with, with me there. Uh, my email, uh, John, uh, J-O-H-N at EIMPT.com. Always happy to stay connected with folks. And uh, uh, certainly, um, you know, folks who've got opinions about the future of education, we love to listen to critics. So if you have a disparate opinion, uh, we're wide open to hearing that and receiving that. We get better 
uh, by really listening to those who may have different points of view. So we enjoy the, uh, the healthy uh, debate as well. Thanks for having me. The pleasure was all ours. And thank you again for coming on the show, Dr. Childs. To our listeners who want to learn more about us, we are online through Facebook at the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Uh, we are also available on Twitter at HET Podcast. And you can also follow us on our website at healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And on our next episode, we will have Todd Davenport discussing what makes a great educator. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you in class next week.